So another applause for our sermon intro video. I love it. So thank you for being here today. If you are new with us, my name is Trent. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And today we're in part two of a series called My Church. And it's based on a statement that Jesus made in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he said this. He said, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So when Jesus made that statement, he was revealing God's number one priority in the world. So building his church is the thing that God is focused on all the time. It's the thing that he can't get off his mind. It's his number one top priority with everything that he does. So we're learning about what that means for us and how we can be a part of what God is doing in building his church. And next week, we're going to talk about how he's doing that. And today, I'll tell you in just a minute what we're going to talk about. But last week, I started with this question. And I, and I asked, how many of you have had a bad church experience? So I'm just curious. Again, how many of you would say you've had a bad church experience? Some of you might be waiting to hold your hand up at the end of this service to say that this was your bad church experience. Like, I don't know. Uh, but there are a lot of bad church experiences out there. And I actually uh, got into several conversations last Sunday about that. I got multiple emails this past week of people describing their bad church experiences. And it broke my heart to read that stuff. And it reminded me of why this series is so important and why it's so important for us to get this whole church thing right. Because we as Christ followers, we represent God to the world. And it seems like when we look around the world, we could do a better job. And so that's what we're talking about together in this series. Now, today we're going to try to answer this question. Who is the church for? So who is the church for? And I would love to start by hearing some of your answers to this question. So if you're watching online, feel free to type in your answer in the comment section. But for those on campus... How would you answer that question? Who is the church for? Sinner. For sinners? For the world? For everyone? For the hurting? Anybody else? For the lost? Somebody said something over here? All people? For Jesus? So thanks for those answers. You know, it seems like our response should be, and a common theme to what I heard there was the church should be for everyone. The problem is many people don't think that. Many people today don't think that the church is for them. They think that the church is for religious people. The church is for people who know a lot about the Bible or for church leaders who've dedicated their lives to God, but many people today don't think that church is for them. And the interesting thing is that's exactly how many people in Jesus' day felt about the church. Many of them thought, you know, the church is not for everyone. The church is for religious leaders. It's for Bible students. It's for wealthy people. It's for arrogant people. They thought it was for a lot of people, but just not all people. So today we're going to learn who the church is really for. As we dive in, I have a pop quiz for you. So hopefully you're ready. Hopefully, hopefully you paid attention last week if you were here. But as we looked at what Jesus said, when Jesus said he would build his church, I told you there was a Greek word that we translated into church, which came off as a little mistranslation there. 
Jesus actually used a different word than the word that we use for church to describe what he was building. So I'm curious, does anyone remember that Greek word? And I'm, I'm trying to make sure that it doesn't, the answer doesn't come up on the screen first. Somebody said? Ecclesia. Ecclesia. So this, you're right. It's a gold star for you. All right, ready. Uh, ecclesia means gathering of people for a specific purpose. So when Jesus said that, he said, listen, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my gathering of my people for my purpose. And uh, the word ecclesia was not a religious term. It wasn't a new term that Jesus introduced. It was a common term. So it was a term that we would use in many contexts. You know, if you go to a football game, there's a whole bunch of people gathering for the purpose of watching that football game. That's an ecclesia, a gathering of people for that purpose of cheering on a football team. So when you think about a group of people gathering for a specific purpose, there's all kinds of context that we get for that. And Jesus, again, said he would gather his people for his purposes. And today we're going to start by looking at the first people Jesus gathered into his ecclesia. And those first people were known as the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Uh, they were handpicked by Jesus to be his closest followers. And Luke, the physician, the physician tells us who they were in Luke chapter six, verse 12. He says, one day, Soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God his Father all night. And at daybreak, he called together all of his disciples. So you have to understand that Jesus had been healing people and doing miracles, and so there's a whole bunch of people loving Jesus. Like, they're all on Team Jesus at that point, and they love being around him. And so he comes down from his time of prayer, and he walks around this crowd. We're not sure how many people were there. There could have been hundreds. And Jesus walks through the crowd and he starts picking. He says, I pick you, and I pick you, and I pick you. Well, not you, the one behind you. Now, he didn't do that. You know, Jesus was real clear about who he picked. But Jesus picked his 12 disciples. And Luke tells us who they were. Their names were Simon, whom he called Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot. So these were the 12 men that Jesus picked after praying all night to his heavenly father. Uh, heavenly father, who should I pick? Who should be the first members of my ecclesia that I will use to build the New Testament church? Like, who should I pick? And these are the men that he chose. And you would think they're the tip of the top, the cream of the crop kind of leaders. But I'll let you make that decision as you hear about them. So Jesus' top three disciples were Peter, James, and John. It's interesting. Jesus had different disciples that he invested different amounts of time in. So he had three that he invested large amounts of time in. He had the 12. He invested some other time in. He had 70 he invested some time in, and then he had more than that. But these were the top three. So we're going to start with Peter. Peter was a passionate follower of Jesus, and he was the only disciple to have on his resume walked on water. Like, like he, like he's the only disciple bold enough to do that when he saw Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee that day. And when, when Jesus asked, as we learned last week, when he said, who do you say that I am? Peter was the first to respond. 
And he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he got a gold star by his name that day. And Jesus said, you are right. And, and I call you Peter, which means rock. And he went on to describe on Peter's statement, he would build his church. But listen to what happened right after that moment. So if you keep reading in Matthew 16, the very next story is this one. It starts in verse 21. It says, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. So apparently, Peter's feeling pretty good after he got the gold star by his name, and Jesus called him the rock. And so he pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Um, yeah, yeah, over here, away from the other disciples. So Jesus, like, you got to stop with this whole death, dying, doom, and gloom thing. Like, the other disciples, not me, but the other disciples, they're getting kind of discouraged. Like, I can hear them in the break room. Like they're talking to each other about whether they should send out resumes to other rabbis because they're not quite sure that you're fully into the mission here of what we're supposed to be about. So Jesus, you keep healing, you keep giving inspirational talks and I will take care of the rest. Remember who I am. I'm Peter, I'm the rock. And Jesus responded. He said in verse 23, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Ouch. So Peter went from top of the class to scratching his own uh, gold star off of his name and was called Satan in just a moment. So Peter was impulsive, had a temper problem, had anger issues. He told Jesus, I am so committed to you, I will die for you. I'll even die with you. And the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter denied Jesus three times. He denied even knowing him. Like, I don't even know the guy. I've never seen him before in my life. When the guards came to arrest Jesus, Peter, the fisherman, pulled out a sword, tried to chop off a guard's head, and missed and got his ear. So Peter was hot-tempered, overconfident, yet faithless at times, and he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. Then there was James and John. So James and John, they were brothers, and if you read the book of John that John wrote in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, John describes himself as the one Jesus loved. Where did he give, get that title? He gave it to him himself. And Jesus gave James and John a different title. He called them the sons of thunder. So before Thor came out as the god of thunder, Jesus is saying, uh, yeah, James and John, you're like sons of thunder. And here's an example of why Jesus called them that. In Luke 9, 51, it says this, as the time drew near for him to ascend, meaning Jesus, to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And we'll pause there for just a minute. Remember what's going to happen in Jerusalem? He's already told us that. 
He's going to be treated poorly by the religious leaders. He's going to be accused of things that he didn't do. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be crucified. He's going to take the sin of the world on his shoulders. And it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. How many of you would resolutely set out for Jerusalem if you knew what Jerusalem held for you? Anybody? I wouldn't. I would resolutely head the other direction. But Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Scripture says, why? Because of the joy that waited him beyond the cross. What was the joy beyond the cross? That we could have a relationship with him that would last forever. That's why he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now let's continue. Verse 52 says, he sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So let me give you the backstory there. So the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews, many of them hated the Samaritans. And Jesus was traveling from Galilee, a region in the north of Israel. He was headed to Judea in the south of Israel. And he had to pass through Samaria. And many Jews would travel around Samaria because they hated the Samaritans that much. But Jesus took his disciples through Samaria and told his disciples, like, hey, go prepare a place for me in this village. I'm going to stop and stay there on my way to Jerusalem. When the Samaritans found that out, they said, nope, we're not going to receive Jesus because he's just traveling through and he's on his way to be with those people and worship in that land, in that spot where we don't worship and we don't hang out with those people. So no, we say no to Jesus. And verse 54 says, when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? So James and John wanted to kill a whole village of people because they would not receive Jesus. And they were part of the top three, the closest disciples that Jesus had. We know a little bit about Andrew, Peter's brother, and Philip, but we don't know much about Bartholomew or the other James or the other Judas. And imagine being the other guys, you know, like you're traveling in your group and, you know, somebody from a town meets you, you, these disciples, like you're one of Jesus' disciples, like you're James. Oh, you're one of the top three. Like, no, no, I'm the other James that we don't know much about. All right, but the other Judas would have been pretty excited about that. Like, you're Judas? Like, no, 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 I'm the other Judas. We'll find out about Judas in just a minute. Like, he didn't turn out to be a really good guy. So we know a little bit about Thomas. And, and, and what do we call Thomas? What's his nickname? Doubting. Doubting Thomas. You've heard of him before. Like, just get that. He got a nickname that he's held for 2,000 years because of a moment of doubting. And I like to give Thomas a little break every once in a while because like, we would all doubt if we were in that spot. Well, here's how he got that nickname. So Jesus revealed himself after his resurrection to some of his disciples. And they came to tell the other disciples, like, we've seen the risen Savior. And Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see with my own eyes. I touch him with my own hands. I'm not going to believe and then Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, walked up to Thomas and said, Thomas, see me? Thomas, put your hands in the wounds in my hand, the wound in my side. Thomas, stop doubting. Believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. So that's Thomas. Then we have Simon. We have Simon, who was called the zealot. 
This is a really interesting pick for Jesus because the Zealots were a group of bloodthirsty revolutionaries who hated Romans. And they would do anything to overthrow the Roman government, even acts of violence. And so they pulled off many acts of violence and were considered terrorists in their day. And the only people Zealots hated more than Romans were Jewish tax collectors. And guess who else Jesus invited into their group? It was Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. Now, here's why uh, all um, Jews hated Jewish tax collectors, because they were hired by Rome. When, when Rome would take control of a new country, they would hire within that country certain people that lived there because they knew the people. They knew who had money, who didn't have money. And so they would hire them as tax collectors and they would set their standard for what those people had to turn into Rome, but they could charge anything above that they wanted. And so Jews hated the Jewish tax collectors because they got rich off of the oppression of their own people and they considered them traitors. So Jesus picked a traitor to be one of his 12 disciples. Then there was Judas Iscariot. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. And he had a money problem. He actually had a greed problem. And I find it so interesting that Jesus made him the treasurer of the group. So he knew that Judas had a money problem. And he said, hey, Judas, why don't you take care of our finances for ministry. Why don't you keep control of that? And so he did. And uh, one of his habits was uh, one for you, one for me. So he'd say, all right, so one for ministry, like I'll say this for, for what we're doing to pay for our expenses and I'll put one in my pocket as well. So one for you, one for me, he struggled with that. He actually betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He ended up killing himself after that because of his grief. So those were the 12 disciples. Uh, the people that, that Jesus first gathered into his ecclesia. And if you're thinking, like, those were some messed up people. Yes, they were. And that means those of us who struggle with doubt or failure or greed or have anger issues, those of us who are impulsive, those who battle hatred, we would fit well in Jesus' ragtag group of disciples. But that's not the only type of people that Jesus pursued. Mark chapter 10 tells us a time that Jesus asked a rich young ruler to come be one of his disciples. And the story goes like this. One day, a rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus. He falls down before him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds in Mark chapter 10, verse 19. And he replied, to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not uh, testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and your mother. And the man replied, teacher, I have obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. He said, there's still one thing you haven't done. He said, why don't you go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So Jesus gave this rich young ruler an opportunity of a lifetime to be used by Jesus in building his New Testament church. And who knows what stories we would be reading today about this guy if he had chosen to follow Jesus. But verse 22 tells us, 
that at this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. So he walked away from this opportunity of a lifetime because he loved his stuff more than he loved God. Jesus put his finger on that, said, I know what issue you need to deal with. And Jesus wasn't telling him, if you give your your money away to the poor, uh, you'll gain eternal life. He wasn't saying that. He was saying you would have treasure in heaven. He was very clear about how we have eternal life, and that's through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. But again, Jesus knew exactly what this guy needed to address in his life, and he turned Jesus down. Acts chapter 9 tells about another person Jesus invited to be one of his disciples. His name was Saul. And Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. This happened after Jesus' resurrection. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any of the followers of the way he found there. So that's what Christianity was known as it started. It was simply known as the way. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So Paul was a prominent Jewish religious leader who hated Jesus, and he hated his followers until he met Jesus one day. Verse 3 tells us, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So after that encounter... Saul, who became Paul, went into the city, went into Damascus, and started preaching to everyone there, saying, Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And if you were a follower of Jesus in that day, and you knew that Saul was coming to arrest you, what would you think about Saul, who comes into your town and is preaching about Jesus? It's a trap. I'm thinking, like, are you using reverse psychology? Like, are you trying to get us to come out of hiding so that you can arrest us? And Saul was so transformed by this encounter with Jesus that he gave his life to following Jesus. And again, he became Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament. Part of the Bible has become one of the most prominent Christ followers our world has ever seen. So again, who's the church for? It's for everyone. The church is for everyone. It's for skeptics, skeptics, it's for strugglers, it's for doubters, it's for haters, it's for wealthy people, it's for poor people, it's for religious people, it's for non-religious people, it's for people who grew up in the church, it's for people who've never been to a church service before. It's for people who, who know a lot about the Bible, it's for people who know nothing about the Bible. Jesus, ecclesia, his church is for everyone. And that statement should shape how churches operate how we engage the world around us. And that statement has shaped our church and the strategy that we have as a church. So if you're new with us, our strategy is this. Our strategy is to be a church for people who don't do church. And often I find that when people first read that, maybe read that on the back of one of our t-shirts or or see that on our website, there's often that scratch your head kind of like, what does that mean? Because that doesn't make any sense. Well, that statement has two parts to it. So the first part is this. We don't want to just do church. 
I grew up in church world, and many of you might have grown up in, a, in church world. And for, for me and my experience, uh, church world was about checking off boxes. It was about wearing the right kind of clothes. It was about singing the right kind of songs. It was about gaining the right kind of biblical knowledge. And it wasn't about applying that to my life. It, it was just about gaining the knowledge that I needed from scripture. And so it was about checking off boxes. And when we started Epic, we didn't want to do church. We wanted to learn how to be the church for each other and for our community and take the information that we have and apply it to our lives. That's what God wants for all of us is when we learn something, he wants us to apply it right away. He doesn't want us to learn a whole, a whole bunch and apply this much. He wants us to learn and apply, learn more and apply, learn more and apply. So we want to be the church, not just do church. Second meaning to that statement is that we are after people who don't do church. Jesus said he came to seek and save those who are lost. And we feel very called by God to follow his example. That means we're after people you know, in our community. And maybe someone here today, maybe you're watching online or maybe you've joined us today, just a little skeptical about church. Maybe you heard about this. Maybe you saw one of our t-shirts. You want to come just check it out just to, to see if, if God could have any value in your life or church could have any value in your life. Well, I want you to know that we're purposely after you. But that affects everything that we do. It affects the clothes that we wear, the songs that we sing, the way that we teach, the way that we serve our community. Why? Because Jesus' church is for everyone. His ecclesia truly is for everyone. Now, I don't know if you feel like church is for you, but it is. And Jesus invites you to be a part of his family. He invites you to be a part of his family where you can be accepted and loved and helped to become a little bit more like Jesus. Acts chapter two gives us an amazing glimpse of that first New Testament church that Jesus was building and what it looked like after he had uh, risen and, was, and ascended back to heaven. And it, listen to this beautiful picture of the church. In Acts chapter two, verse 42, it says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day and in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter stood up at a gathering of people and he said, like, I gotta tell you about Jesus. And he preached his heart out. And 3,000 people said, we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. We, we want to be a part of Jesus' ecclesia, that New Testament church, his gathering of his followers that he's going to use for his purposes. And the church started to explode at that point. I think that's the same kind of church Jesus still wants to build today, a beautiful church that is so attractive to our world. And it's a church that he invites us to be a part of and invites us to help him build. So here's my closing question. Will you commit to a church? Will you commit 
to a church. And I'm not asking you to commit to joining a church, our church or, or, or really any church. We, we actually don't have formal church membership in the context of church membership. Uh, we view people who attend and serve as our church members. Um, so here's what I'm asking. I'm asking, will you commit to a local church family? And I know some of you are probably pushing back on me a little bit mentally, you know, at, at that, that, that I would have the audacity, like bait and switch, that I pulled you in and now I'm asking you to commit to a church. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't want to commit because I, I don't know if I believe everything that you believe here at Epic. That's okay. Jesus' disciples didn't believe everything that Jesus taught until after his resurrection. You might say, but I don't know enough about the Bible. That's okay. A great way to learn the Bible is to attend a place where the Bible is regularly taught, and you'd be amazed at how much you can learn about the Bible if you just have that practice in your life. Some of you might say, but I'm not a churchy kind of person. That's okay. Neither was Jesus. He was not interested in checking off boxes. He was not interested in rules and regulations. He was interested in building a relationship with a group of people that would transform the world and building a family that would last forever. Others of you might say, but if I commit to a church, God might ask me to give something up. That's true. He might. But the thing that God offers you in return will far outweigh anything you and I could ever hold on to, like that rich young ruler held on to. You might say, but I don't like Epic Church. I don't like your vision, and I don't like the bald pastor. Like, that's okay. It really is. I know Epic is not for everyone. But there is a church, I think, for everyone. And uh, believe it or not, we actually have pastors in our very own community that have hair. And I know it's shocking, but it is amazing. And uh, if you're interested in one of those churches, I will connect you with one. So again, will you commit to a local church family? Will you find a place that you can say, that's my church? Not that's that church or that's your church. Will you find a place where you can say, that's my church? Now here's what committing to a church might look like for you. For some of you, it might look like coming back for this entire series. Uh, there's so much more for us to learn. And maybe you're like new to this whole church thing, this whole God thing. And my first uh, challenge for you for a commitment to a church would be, hey, just keep coming back or keep tuning in online. There's a lot more for us to learn. For others of you, it might look like coming back and reading our Bible reading plan on our spiritual growth challenge. Uh, so we make a one-page document available each Sunday. It's available in our, our uh, lobby area. If you're watching online, there's a link to that in the comment section. We make that available each week so that we can dive deeper into what we're talking about on Sunday. And so if you've never started reading the Bible before, that would be a great place to start reading the Bible. You just take that and follow along. Monday, it's got a Bible reading plan. Tuesday, it's got another plan. Wednesday, it's got some, another suggestion. There's questions along with it that'll help you dig a little bit deeper. So for some of you, maybe your commitment is, I'm coming back and I'm gonna read the Bible plan. Now, for others, it might be attending regularly beyond this series or tuning in regularly 
online. And that might be a, a big step for some of you. You know, maybe you come you know, periodically, but maybe the thing that you need to do to grow the most in your relationship with God or in getting your answers, uh, your questions answered that you have is to commit and come back. Like we've got a great series coming up next about Jesus. And it's a series, I tell you, you don't want to miss. So I encourage you to come and be a part of that. For others of you, maybe committing to a church looks like this, picking a church and stop shopping or hopping. If you are shopping for a church, I get it. I get it. That is one of the hardest things to do. When I meet people that are shopping, like my heart aches for them. Uh, my wife and I, when we moved to Virginia over 24 years ago, um, we spent six months looking for a church family. And at some point, we're like, we're not sure, but we just have to decide. And here's the reality. You will never find a perfect church out there. If you do, don't join it because you'll mess it up. <laughs> I would mess it up as well, okay? So this isn't a perfect church. So at some point on your journey, and I recommend if you're like exploring, you should explore. You should shop. But at some point, you should get to a spot where you say, you know, I'm going to stop shopping. I'm going to commit to a church family. Others uh, do the church hopping thing, uh, where you like a little bit here, a little bit there, and you know I like this church for that, I like that church for that, and so you, you kind of hop all around between different churches. My recommendation for your spiritual growth is stop doing that. Find a church family and commit to that family and grow through what God wants to do through that local group of believers. That's one of the best ways for us to grow in our relationship with God. For others of you, it, may, it might involve committing to a community group, one of our small groups. We've got men's groups, women's groups, couples groups. We've got all kinds of groups uh, because we were never meant to do life alone. And if all, of, all that we do is attend on Sundays, we're gonna fall through the cracks. So we need to be in relationships with other people who can cheer us on and, and help us and encourage us, and we can do the same thing for them. And if you're interested, in one of our community groups, just stop by our group's table before you leave and find out the groups that we have available. For others of you, uh, commitment to a church might involve committing to find a place to serve and to dive in. And I know that's often a place where people go like, ah, like I'm not so sure, like, like I'm not sure that I want to dive in. Like, like what if I'm not good at that thing that I commit to do? Like, guess what? We don't want to leave you in that spot if you're not good at it, okay? Because you're not good at it. So we will help you find a spot that you are gifted at. God has gifted you and wired you with certain gifts and talents. He wants you to use those through building his ecclesia, this local church family. So for some of you, your commitment would involve finding a place to serve and diving in. If you're curious about that, stop by our Connection Center, and we'd love to help you with that. For others of you, this is what committing to the church might look like might look like putting your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's the greatest decision you can ever make in your life. This is how we join Jesus' global church, his global family that lasts forever. This is when we're adopted into his family. When we say, like, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I, I believe that you died so I can live forever. And I ask you to come into my life and be my Lord and my Savior. Transform my heart. And then after that, we learn to live a little bit more like Jesus every day. And if you've never made that decision before, and if you want to today, I encourage you to do that. During our final song, just start a conversation with God. Say, God, I need you. 
God, I believe that you sent Jesus to die so I could be a part of your eternal family. And Jesus, I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. If you make that decision today, a party breaks out in heaven because it's your adoption day. You become adopted into God's family. And then I encourage you to start growing in your relationship with God. Again, if you've never made that decision before, I encourage you to make it today. If you want to talk about that after the service, I'll be in the lobby. In just a minute, our worship team is going to close us out today. And as they do, I encourage you to think back to the answer to the question that we asked at the beginning of the service. So since the church is for everyone, the church is for you. And that shouldn't be a question mark. That should be an exclamation point. The church is for you. So there is a church out there where you can get your your questions answered. There's a great church out there where you can learn the teachings of Jesus and how to apply that to your life. There's a great church where where you don't have to be perfect to attend. And if you're ever struggling with that, just think back to Jesus' 12 disciples and how he invited them to be a part of his first New Testament church. So whether you consider yourself a Christ follower or not, will you commit to being part of a local church family? Because Jesus' church, Jesus' ecclesia, really is for everyone. So if you would, let's stand together. Let's pray, and then let's sing. So Jesus, it's so encouraging to, to read the first disciples that you chose to be a part of your ecclesia. Lord, when we start looking at the 12 disciples, you know, so often, you know, being 2,000 years removed from that, we, you know, we just kind of make these, these guys saints. And when you picked them, they certainly were anything but saints. They had a lot of issues. They were pretty messed up. And yet you chose them. You handpicked them to be a part of your ecclesia that you were going to use to transform the world. And after your resurrection, the light came on for them. And they worked hard at joining you in building your church. And, and Lord, it was, it was a beautiful moment. Thousands of people wanted to be a part of that. The church was so beautiful, so attractive to people who were outside of that. It was a family that they wanted to to be connected with. And Lord, since then, it just feels like we as Christ followers have kind of neglected our duties. Like your church isn't as beautiful as it used to be. And Lord, I, I, I think you're asking us to get back to the primary thing that you are focused on in the world that is building your church and inviting people, all people, to be a part of that and helping them grow to become a little bit more like Jesus every day. So Lord, it's important for us to commit to a local church family. So Lord, I pray for those that are here in in whatever aspect that looks like for them. Lord, you know the step they need to take. Lord, I pray that you would draw them into that step. And Lord, there just might be some folks here today or watching online that are at that spot saying like, I need Jesus. And if so, again, I encourage you to have a conversation with him right now. Ask him to be your Lord and your savior and he will step in and do that. He will adopt you into his family. So God, thank you for being a God who loves all of us. Uh, You love us no matter how messed up we are. And you use us to build 
your church. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.